A small child hides behind a rock on the Appalachian Trail while playing with his friends and is never seen again. He is just one of dozens who go missing from national parks under mysterious circumstances each year. What is causing these odd abductions? Welcome, welcome, welcome to the KMH Podcast. With you as always is Brad. Today we're going to talk about something a little different. We're going to go through the hidden route and discuss what's known as the missing 411 phenomenon. David Politis is the force behind this area of mystery and intrigue. He's a former police officer who was alerted by some park rangers to the fact that People go missing in the park service, and it's kind of swept under the rug, at least in his opinion. He began his own independent research. He was a cop of 20 years when he was alerted to this fact. And at Yosemite National Park, he learned of many, many people who had gone missing without ever being found and without any explanation being offered. And all of them went missing under odd circumstances. He attempted to work with the National Park Service to see if he could help solve some of these cases or at least shed some light onto what was going on. Yet he was stonewalled at every turn. He tried to get a list of all missing persons just from Yosemite National Park, and he was told it would cost $34,000 to produce that list because this park service did not keep it. It was something they would have to put together especially for him. He inquired as to why this was not something that was being kept, as you would expect any sort of law enforcement type agency to do. And they say they keep the records. It's just through the memories of the folks that work there, which was odd to him, odd to me. That means if Betty, your receptionist, decides to take another job, all the knowledge she has from her 15 years of working there disappears. With each new park ranger that retires or leaves the service, you lose 10, 15, 20 years of memories about cases, a highly inefficient way to keep track of such an important matter. Pilatus was also told that if he wanted a missing persons report for the entire national park system, it would cost $1.4 million. Naturally, Pilatus found this to be shocking and odd, and he started devoting his time to researching these cases on his own. Through his own efforts, he has identified multiple clusters where unusual abductions or disappearances tend to occur. These are typically centered on the East Coast and the West Coast. The Midwest, the central part of the United States, is oddly spared. Some of the clusters he's identified on the West Coast, you'd have Yosemite and Crater National Park as two of the hottest hot spots. In the east, the entire state of Pennsylvania and the Great Smoky Mountains are two of the more active locations for these mysterious disappearances. Politis has published seven books on these missing cases and produced two documentaries. So what qualifies for him as a missing 411 case? He does not take any missing person's case. If a disappearance looks like it was caused due to an animal attack, a criminal act, a mental health issue, 
a drowning or someone who is eager just to walk off into the sunset and start a new life, he excludes them. The common victim profile, according to Politis, is the person goes missing in a national park, typically near large bodies of water or boulder fields. The person is either exceptionally intelligent or suffers from some sort of mental handicap. The person is either in peak physical fitness or suffers from a serious physical disability. You see people on extreme ends of the spectrum, average folks like me and probably you aren't, it's ta- aren't targeted as much. If the person is found deceased, the cause of death is always nearly impossible to determine. It's typically attributed to exposure or hypothermia, something along those lines. Further, the deceased person also appears to have been dead for maybe a day or two, even if they've been missing for weeks or months. If the person happens to be found alive, they can't account for how they survived. And especially in children, they have an almost fairy tale like story that they express on how they survived. There's been accounts of one boy, I believe it was, was was taken care of by a family of bears. Another was taken care of by robots. Very, very bizarre stuff. Typically when the deceased are found, and the living too to some degree, they're in areas that seem impossible to reach by foot or in an area that would be impossible to reach within the time that has elapsed. They also, oddly, are found in places that have previously been searched, often multiple times. And what makes it really odd, the person is typically found without their shoes or other articles of clothing. Another common factor that you see in these cases is tracking dogs who live and breathe for tracking down missing people, never catch a scent, or refuse to enter into the woods or the national park whatsoever. They'll putter around, they'll whine, they'll lay down, they'll play with each other, but they will not track. And oftentimes you see, as soon as the person disappears, odd weather patterns move through the area and hamper an immediate search. If you're interested in this beyond what I have to offer, David Politis has done hundreds of hours of interviews many of which can be found on YouTube. Again, he has those books and the documentaries. Uh, The documentaries can be rented from Amazon for around three bucks, I believe. His books are available only through his website, canammissing.com. So that's the story of the man. Let's hear what kind of stories he has to tell us. Our first case is Corey Kelly. Corey was a 38-year-old man who went hunting with his buddy Jim on October 16, 2006. They were hunting the Red Lake Wilderness of Minnesota. As they set up camp, they realized that they hadn't brought any gasoline with them. Jim decided to go back while Corey thought he'd tried to get in a little bit of hunting before the sun went down. Jim left at 5.30 and returned to the campsite at 7. When he returned... Corey was nowhere to be found. Now, Corey was very well equipped to go hunting. He had a shotgun with several shells, warm clothing, uh, coat, lighter cigarettes, cell phone, and Sammy, who was Jim's hunting dog. 
Also, Corey wasn't new to this. He had been hunting in this exact area of Minnesota for over 25 years and was intimately familiar with the area. He knew the dangers that lurked there. There was lots of hidden swamps and bogs and certainly not something he would want to engage in at night. When Jim got back and found Corey and Sammy missing, he poked around for a little bit, but he thought it would be smart to stay at the campsite rather than go too far as darkness set in. Once it became pitch black, Jim obviously was worried, and so he turned on his truck lights and been, began honking the horn to try to give Corey a, a beacon to locate as he wandered back towards the campsite. Unfortunately, neither Corey nor Sammy returned, but, but I'll give a spoiler. Sammy the dog is a found alive and well, so don't worry about the doggie. Jim eventually went to sleep but woke up early, around 4 a.m., worried and nervous, and began his search out into the wilderness to try to find Corey. He searched for about two hours, found no trace of Corey or Sammy when he stumbled across a road that cut through this area. When he got to the road, he flagged down a passing motorist, and he asked the occupants to please call law enforcement, explain the situation to him. The local sheriff was notified and took the lead on the search. For nearly two weeks, searchers combed through the tall grasses and boggy terrain. Lots of searchers were utilizing ATVs to cover more ground, and yet nothing was found. On October 26th, Sammy appeared, wandering around the woods about nine miles from the campsite. He was hungry and dehydrated, but otherwise in good shape. Two days later, on October 28th, searchers found Corey's cigarettes, gloves, and his lighter. Then on the 29th, they found his overalls, socks, and sweatshirt. These were found 14 miles from the campsite. There's no word whether or not his shoes were found. It only mentioned his socks. On October 30th, they had to suspend the search because of bad weather. Searches began again in November, but were only conducted sporadically because of the bad weather conditions that just plagued the month of November. They did bring in some dogs, and these dogs actually caught a scent, but they couldn't follow it because several beaver dams had flooded or had flooded and collapsed, which in turn flooded a lot of the area that they were trying to search. On November 22nd, the search the November searches had revealed nothing new, and it was suspended for the winter. It wasn't until April 27th of 2017 that they could resume the search. Helicopters were brought in, and within two hours, Corey's body was found. It was on a little hill about 15 feet from a hiking trail and just one mile away from a paved road. This was a trail that searchers had passed through multiple times, never saw heard, or, to be gross, smelled Corey. The coroner had difficulties determining the cause of death and concluded that he passed away from hypothermia. Jan Kelly, who was Corey's mother, was apparently told by the police that they thought Corey had traveled the entire 14 miles the first night he went missing. No basis has ever been provided for this assessment, and it sounds 
like an impossible task considering the terrain and the situation that Corey was facing. If law enforcement's theory is correct, that would mean the coroner's determination of the cause of death can't be right. It seems impossible that Corey would die from hypothermia so quickly when he had with him a lighter, lots of tall grass that was still dry, and presumably Sammy was still with him, who could provide a significant source of heat. Now, if the coroner is correct and law enforcement is wrong about how fast Corey traveled, that could explain why we found some of Corey's clothing items. As cold weather can cause nerve damage, and some people experience that pain as an intense heat and engage in what's called paradoxal undressing. Folks will get naked as they freeze to death because they think they're overheating. But remember, Corey was armed with a shotgun, and experienced hunters know there's something called the hunter's distress signal, where you fire three shots into the air. Certainly, if Corey became lost that first night, he could have fired those shots, and I think even from that distance, Jim would have been able to hear it. So if Corey was wandering around for days, why did he never attempt to alert anybody with his shotgun? Now, note what I never said it was found by the searchers. Corey's shotgun was missing and never found to this day. It wasn't with his body or any of his other belongings. And it seems very odd that a hunter would let go of his weapon in this sort of situation. There's also the issue of his cell phone. He could have called for help, and he didn't. Now, he was in the wilderness, yes, but there was spotty cell coverage. You weren't guaranteed to have a signal every time you pulled out your phone, but during the course of the 14-mile trek you made, he definitely would have caught bars at some point. Oddly, Corey's cell phone never once pinged off of a cell tower from the time he went missing to the time he was found. Let's get even stranger. What about Sammy? Minnesota is covered with streams, swamps, bogs, and lakes, yet the dog was found dehydrated? It seems really odd and highly unlikely that a dog wouldn't be able to find water when dealing with the situation. Since Corey was such an experienced hunter, especially in this area, it seems logical to me that Corey would have made an attempt to make some sort of shelter once he realized he was lost at night and waited out till morning to try to see if he could get his bearings. And then at that point, use whatever tools he had at his disposal to try to get back to Jim. Yet, if the police are to believe, Corey instead just raced for 14 miles into the darkness. It's also odd that Corey would choose to lie down only 15 feet from a hiking trail and in tall grass. Even if he was becoming desperate and hopeless, he would have to know that there's a better chance of being found if he slept or rested next to a trail rather than 15 feet away in swamp grass that was 8 to 10 feet tall. So this is a difficult one to puzzle out. It is, of course, possible that Corey just made every wrong decision in the book. 
that doesn't seem plausible for someone with his experience and his equipment. You would think that spending 25 years hunting the same area would give you some intimate knowledge of the terrain and would kind of give you a bonus when you got lost in being able to find your way out of it. Now, this is a true wilderness area. There's certain parts that probably very few humans have ever stepped foot in, but it's also not far from civilization. I just have to believe Corey would know which way the roads were, which way help was, which way his campsite was, all these sorts of things from the path he had taken that night. But I'm most bothered by Sammy because I can see humans doing lots of stupid things and getting themselves killed. But I don't see a dog doing stupid things and putting themselves in danger. How could Sammy be dehydrated in a wetlands? How could he not find a stream or a puddle or anything to keep him going? Dogs don't make stupid decisions like that. It almost seems like Sammy was prevented from having access to water. Now, maybe he wanted to stay by Corey's side until he died, and so he forced the dehydration upon himself. I just would find that to be very surprising if that was the truth. So, that's our first oddity of the cases we're going to go through today. Let's move on to case number two. Okay, this one involves a child named Lloyd Sonny Hokit, and it occurred in 1945. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't find any information through my research about this case, so all of what I'm giving you is coming straight from David Politis's book, Missing 411, Eastern United States. So this is your opportunity to harshly judge both my ability as a researcher and a podcast host. So according to Politis, nine-year-old Sonny joined his uncle for a squirrel hunt on October 22nd. They were in the... Kiamichi Mountains of eastern Oklahoma. These mountains are known for their very rugged terrain and thick vegetation. The uncle and nephew stopped for a drink of water from a stream during their hike when all of a sudden their dogs took off. The dogs had caught scent of a squirrel and were chasing it down. The uncle followed quickly behind, but turned around to confirm that Sonny was only a few feet behind him. When the uncle got in position and sighted the squirrel, he once again checked on saying to make sure he was in a safe position. This time, though, the boy was nowhere to be found. Of course, the uncle immediately stopped hunting and began searching for, for Sonny. But he couldn't find him. Sonny wouldn't respond to any of his shouts. And the hunting dogs were not able to pick up a scent. The uncle searched for 30 minutes before he decided he needed to go get help. So he returned to his truck and raced to the closest town. He gathered a search party, but when they arrived at the trail, a sudden heavy storm hit the region and temperatures dropped quickly. The next day, the Oklahoma Highway Patrol was brought in and they took the lead. Not only did local residents come out in droves to help with the search, but military personnel from Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas were sent to assist. Ultimately, there were somewhere between 150 and 200 people searching for Little Sonny. The next day, so we're now 48 hours from Sonny being gone, two soldiers find Sonny. 
He's passed out four miles away from where he was last seen on a rather high ridge line of the mountains. The soldiers who found him said Sonny was alive but with a very weak pulse. They rushed him back to town to the hospital, but by the time they could get the boy there, he was pronounced dead, the cause of death being exposure. The Nevada State Journal reported that Sonny was found with many bruises and that his clothing was ripped to shreds, but no signs of animal attack, no bleeding, nothing of that sort. Politis notes in his book that it seems impossible for a child to travel so far through rugged terrain in a matter of moments that he could not hear his uncle and that the dogs could not pick up what should have been an extremely fresh scent. Politis also states it's unclear why a boy who is used to being in the outdoors would not stay near the stream or would not find some of the clear areas in the mountains to travel through. Again, I wish I could have found more independent information on this case uh, so I could flesh it out a little bit more. But what from Politis has provided us, I, I get what he's saying. I understand why he includes this in his book. This is odd that a little boy could could travel so far so quickly and end up dead from what he was doing. And, and again, that the dogs wouldn't be able to track him down after he had been missing for literally seconds. We're going to do one more case, and to me it's one of the most unusual ones I've read uh, of this phenomenon. Case number three involves Dennis Martin. On Father's Day weekend in 1969, the Martin family went on their annual camping trip into the Great Smoky Mountains. The family hiked from Cades Cove to Russell Field and camped overnight. The next day, they hiked from Spence Field near the Appalachian Trail where they planned to spend the night. When they arrived at Spence Field, another family was there taking a break. That family was also known as the Martins. Of course, unrelated, but they had children of their own. So while the adults talked, the children, of course, played in the field. Six-year-old Dennis Martin, who is dressed wearing a bright red shirt, joined with the other children, and they decided to try to scare the adults while they were setting up camp. So they formed a plan and broke up into groups, and they were all going to jump out at the same time and, you know, yell gotcha and, and scare their folks and have a gay old time. Dennis is the only one who's sent on his own, and he's sent to jump out from behind either a bush or a rock behind the camping site. However, he is never seen again once he goes on this quest. Dennis's father, of course, immediately begins combing the trail the family had walked, dashing back two miles to look for the little boy, and then ran ahead two miles to see if he went that way. The other adults and kids check the fringes of the area, shouting his name, looking for his red shirt, found nothing. After several hours, the family contacted the park rangers for help. But as a search party was being formed, a torrential downpour began in the area. I've read that as much as three inches of rain fell in just a matter of hours, the temperature suddenly dropped into the 50s. I saw it recorded as low as 50 degrees. 
And from what I can dig up, this is odd because we're talking about June in East Tennessee. It averages four inches of rain in this area in the month of June. And the average low temperature around Father's Day is in the 70s. So we've got more rainfall than you would expect to occur over a week's time happening in a few hours' time. And the temperature is pushing record lows all out of nowhere. The next day, the park rangers have gathered police, local volunteers, the National Guard, the FBI show up to assist, and you even have special forces. Helicopters and dogs are brought in. Um, from what I've read, the peak size of the group was around 1,500 people. I'm sorry, 1,400 people. And they were able to cover 56 square miles within eight days. Search groups were being airlifted all around the area. And at night, lots of volunteers offered to stay in the woods and would light giant bonfires, again, giving Dennis a target to move towards. You even had psychics show up after a few days to offer their assistance. Dennis's parents offered a reward of $5,000 for anyone who could provide information leading to the recovery of Dennis, alive or dead. There was absolutely no evidence of an animal attack. There was no evidence that could be found that Dennis had fallen and was injured. And there was no obvious evidence as to which direction Dennis had traveled. Note that among these people that showed up, there was lots of expert trackers. And from my research, an expert tracker can locate up to 2,000 clues for every mile an adult travels as to how fast they're moving, what direction they're moving. All three little things are trained to look for. Here, no tracker could find any information about which way Dennis went at all. Okay, now let's get really weird. The Special Forces. Green Berets were sent to assist, but they refused to cooperate or share any information with the other rescuers there. They showed up heavily armed as if they were preparing for battle. There is a now famous comment on this story on the internet from a, an alleged former Green Beret who takes the time to explain why this is so unusual. You can find the comment at raven tales of the weird dot blogspot.com if you want to read it for your own. But essentially, this fellow claims that he was a command-level officer in the Green Berets for most of his career, and there's only been four times in the history of the Special Forces that they've been utilized to help in a missing persons case. Twice was to assist in taking down targets that were heavily armed and terroristic. Two other times were to find people missing on the Appalachian Trail, Dennis being one of them. This poster said that in general, it is a violation of federal protocol for a special forces unit to engage in providing aid for a domestic search such as this. And it is a separate violation of federal protocol for special forces to be armed and prepared for battle while on U.S. soil. Further, he claims that special forces are only activated for matters of national security. 
And clearly, finding a lost child is not a matter of national security. The fact that this search went on for three months with no trace of the boy ever being found was considered truly frightening, according to this poster. Okay, let's go for weirdness number two here. Dogs were brought in. Some of the best tracking dogs in the southeast. Not a single one of them, regardless of breed or experience, found a scent. Like I described earlier, they played around in the field. When they were forced into the woods, they would whine and cower and try to pull away. It was as if either A, Dennis never existed, or B, there was some other scent that was causing these dogs a lot of fear and they weren't going to get near it. Weirdness number three. There was another family hiking in the area called the Keys. They were about six miles from Spence Field the same night and they heard a little boy screaming for help. The key's son reported seeing a dirty, hairy man moving through the trees with something slung over his shoulder. Rangers dismissed this report as related to Dennis because they said there's no way Dennis could have gotten that far. But some people speculate this information suggests a mountain man kidnapped the boy and successfully fled the scene. Oddity number four, searchers did find a set of tracks that led into a small stream and then disappeared. The tracks were child size, and they were of one shoe print and one footprint, meaning whoever made these tracks was only wearing one shoe. Police were able to confirm that the shoe print matched the style of shoes that Dennis was wearing when he went missing. However, they dismissed this as well, saying that there was lots of Boy Scouts who assisted in the search, and they probably made that track. Yet, shockingly, not one Boy Scout was reported to be searching for Dennis while wearing only one shoe. Now, Dennis is described by his family as being healthy, robust, and a relatively experienced hiker for his age. Searchers were extremely optimistic that he would be found. Um, I, I looked into it, and at least today, expert search and rescue personnel expect that a healthy adult male in rugged terrain can cover between one and a half to two miles every hour. Well, how far could a six-year-old child in the same terrain travel in really bad weather conditions. Apparently, this rainstorm was such that it was causing flooding. Paths were being washed out and were impassable. A lot of upward trails were had turned to mud and just could not be traveled easily. This same study I reviewed also said that children of Dennis's age usually are found within 1.65 miles from where they were last seen, as kids tend to wander aimlessly without any sort of direction or purpose when they're lost in the woods. Now, even though Dennis was an experienced hiker for his age, he also suffered from some mental development issues. He was enrolled in a special education school. And so even if he had been trained on what to do if you're lost in the woods when you're hiking, I don't know if his disability would have impaired his his, how he reacted to the situation. 
So I don't know that we can say that he would have traveled further because he would have been more focused on reaching a destination. I certainly have no clue how severe Dennis's issues were, but it raises that specter. So here we are, what, 50 years later, and no sign of Dennis has ever been found. Even his missing little shoe, never found. And again, this is despite 1,400 people covering 56 square miles in eight days. Nothing was ever found. Now, these three cases are just the tip of the iceberg in this missing 411 phenomenon. Politis has collected literally hundreds of stories like this. There's so many that his initial publication was intended to cover the entire United States, but he had to split it up into one book that focused on the eastern U.S. and one book that focused on the western U.S. And on top of that, he had to exclude all of the missing person cases from Texas and Florida. And he claims that cases from those two states could each be a book unto themselves. Also, what I've provided to you are actually some of the tamest cases and perhaps maybe some of the least convincing of Politis's suggestion that something odd is going on here. If you look into it, uh, there are plenty of tales with lots of macabre details, such as searchers finding only a pair of shoes with, let's say, melted remains inside of them. There are also tales where those who are found express a lot of frustration at being unable to remember what occurred. I remember a grandmother telling a tale of seeing the searchers calling for and looking for, and she was yelling and whooping for them, and they passed by within 10 feet of her and never saw or heard her. So it's a little weird. Now, my suggestion is if you find this interesting and you want to hear more tales, especially some of the really weird ones, go to Amazon and rent Missing 411, The Hunted. He's got two documentaries. This is the second one. And it's very good. It's it's worth the three dollars to me. It will give you an overview of his some of his strangest cases. And the last one on there, if I recall correctly, really sounds more like a science fiction tale than a missing persons report. You can look online. There's so many websites dedicated to this phenomenon. Uh, Reddit has its own subreddit for this. You can find as much information on this as you want. Now, regardless of where you fall on this, this is a good reminder that it's so easy to lose children in the woods. If your family's a sort that goes out and does a lot of hiking or camping or other outdoor activities, just keep this in mind. Don't let your children wander off too far. Don't let them become a missing person. Now, Politis never comes out and says what he thinks is causing this. And again, if you really get into it, you hear some really, really bizarre stories that make it hard to explain this phenomenon. No doubt, many of these stories can be explained away rather simply. All the stories cannot. I think, for example, the Corey Kelly story has a lot of holes in it regardless of what situation you're willing to accept, either the coroner's explanation or the law enforcement's explanation. But regardless, the situation is very strange to me, considering how well-prepared and experienced Corey was for going out into the woods. 
there seems no good reason why he would be hunting after dark. There's no reason why he wouldn't use a cell phone to try to call somebody. There's no reason why he wouldn't use a shotgun to try to draw attention to himself. There seems to be no reason why he wouldn't see or hear uh, Jim honking the car horn. It's it's just crazy to me. And again, the having Sammy there, the dog, who's comes back hungry and dehydrated. <laughs> How does a dog get dehydrated when it's surrounded by water? Uh, that's that case is just very odd to me. Sonny Hokut's story of the three, I think, is the most explainable. It's odd. Adults have a hard time putting themselves into the shoes of a panicking child. And maybe this is a situation where Sonny thought it'd be fun to try to prank his uncle in some way by running off. But man, he'd have to run really far, really fast for the dogs not to be able to get a scent of him. To end up in shredded clothes and highly bruised, it's it's just odd. It's odd. But of the three, I think it's it's more likely that he thought he was doing something funny and just got himself in over his head. Dennis Martin, I got no explanation for. What a weird set of facts. Here you've got, you know, over a thousand people searching day after day after day for three months and not any evidence of that little boy was ever found. It's insane to me. I would have included some of the more gruesome stories, but I want to keep this podcast kind of child-friendly. So again, if you're interested, go look it up. You'll find stories that, as if you put Dennis Dennis's story as a 10 on the weird scale, you will find stories that reach into the 30s and 40s on weirdness. I'm I'm... I don't think I'm exaggerating in saying that. I like to think of myself as a semi-rational person. And there's stories in there that just, they don't make sense. It's not possible. And yet, there they are. Okay, folks. Hide your children. Hide your wife. It's time for palate cleanser. This one was actually picked out by my seven-year-old, so you're probably getting a step up in quality. You should be excited. Here we go. What rock group has four members, but none are able to sing? The answer, Mount Rushmore. And there's that little ray of sunshine you get for your day. All right, well, that wraps up another episode of Killing Miss and Hidden. I keep getting really good feedback from you guys, um, which is surprising to me, but I love it. It's very encouraging. Please keep it up. Uh, of course, all of our united goal on this should be to inflate my ego as much as possible. Next week, we're going to dive into a case that is actually listed in one of Politis's books. But upon examining it and doing my own research, I think we've got a murderer foot. And we'll go through that and see if we can't solve what happened together. Until then, throw me all the five-star ratings you can. Lord knows I need them. Please subscribe so you don't miss any opportunity to hear my masculine voice. With that, I will say kisses to all my lovelies out there to build off the masculinity I'm trying to, to put out into the world. I love you all, and I appreciate y'all listening. This has been your Brad. Thank you for listening to Kellen Missing Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info 
KMHpodcast.com.